about that. We Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone this morning. Thank you all for being here. And uh, we're so very glad to have you with us this morning. We appreciate seeing all of our members who are here all the time and so wonderful to see you. And uh, also so wonderful to have the visitors that we have this morning and we appreciate your presence. And uh, thank you so much for being here and being with us this morning, as well as those who are joining us online. Uh, you mean so much to us and we appreciate you being a part of our worship service and our fellowship every week. And uh, we want you to know to all of you online and here in person that we're always here for you. Thank you so much for being here. We continue in our uh, series on uh, Romans chapter 6. And uh, we're going to be in 6 and 7 today, chapters 6 and 7. And so we'll, we've been going through the book of Romans, and we'll go through <clears throat> uh, these two chapters today. Sometimes we'll take a shorter section, sometimes we'll have a longer one. But these two connect, and, and it helps if you're reading along and if you're following the flow, because anytime you go to a particular passage, you're, you're, you're not getting the full context of that uh, passage. And so it helps when you're reading that book over and over again so you get the fullness of where, what he's saying and what you're zeroing in on at that moment. But in chapter 6, Paul continues to address the false charges that have been uh, lobbied against him by those who, who, who were kind of against him in different ways, whether they were Christians or not. But he was being falsely accused over and over again. And in other letters, he had to deal with this as well. Uh, that he was teaching that because we have the grace of God, that grace, God, God's grace just covers us of our sins. You can go do whatever you want. That there was no use for, no need for moral living because we have God's grace. And they would accuse him of this false teaching. And so he was constantly addressing that and having to correct that among the, the congregations that he wrote to and would go and visit so that they understood, that's not what I'm teaching. Let me teach you appropriately and properly what, what the grace of God is. And, 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 and for them, they were fighting the old law. Do we still have to follow the old covenant, the old law? And so that was always uh, a big debate that he had to deal with, a big issue he had to deal with. So he goes right into it in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Look what he writes. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, are we just to say, hey, the more we sin, the more grace covers us, and the more grace, the, the better. So therefore, go sin more. Is he saying, is that what we're supposed to do? That's not what I'm saying. He said, by no means, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live in it? So he, he, he ends the argument right there, saying, we died to sin, so how could we live in it? And, and he's promoting a moral lifestyle, godly living, but not by following the old law, but because we died to sin. One way to understand what he means when he talks about us dying to sin is to think if you had... A dead dog. A dog has died. It is all the way dead. Sure enough, dead. And you take some food over to that dog and put it in front of his nose. Is that dog going to eat that food? 
And it doesn't matter. It might be something from the table, which for some reason to them tastes better than their dog food. But, and maybe that's why it tastes better to us than their dog food. But you take something off your dinner table over to that dead dog. And not just a crumb of something that fell, but you take a whole big old piece of chicken and you put it in by his nose, touch his nose with it, what's going to happen? It doesn't matter. Why? He's dead, right? And Paul is saying, and you'll see him say more about this, he's saying that's how we are supposed to be to sin, dead to sin. You can put it in front of our nose. You can shake it in front of our face. We are dead to sin. Okay, we'll talk more about that. But that's what he's saying. So he jumps right into this defense of saying that it doesn't make sense for a Christian to sin. It is against our character to sin. Now, immediately we're going to have, we got questions about, okay, what about, yeah, but, all right, let's keep following what Paul's saying. But he's saying it's against our character, against our nature. It doesn't make sense. It does not compute for a Christian to sin. They died to sin, so how could they live in it? So he absolutely teaches moral living, as we said. But look at verses 3 through 5. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him like this in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul immediately points us to baptism. Do you see that? He's saying, how can one who died to sin live in it? And he goes right into explaining baptism and how God uses baptism to connect us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you see that? So a person who's baptized, he's showing us how does a person die to sin? Through baptism. So can a person die to sin without baptism? The answer is no. Because you died to sin through baptism by being united to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what our, our, our graphic here illustrates. And, and, and God knew, see that's the thing, God knew what he was doing. And, and we've just got to believe that God knows what he's doing. And, and we want to, we, we think we know better, we can figure out something that God, that God missed. He knew what he was doing. And he's saying baptism uh, uh, mimics, symbolizes, follows, resembles the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and God said, and I knew that. I did that on purpose. You see, I know what I'm doing, he says. And so, so God, through baptism, unites us with Christ through uh, the death to the death, burial, resurrection of Christ through baptism. And that's what uh, this image helps us to see visually. So look at the bigger picture that he's given us. That baptism unites us with Christ. It's God's chosen way of uniting us with Christ and accessing the, the, the blessings and the grace of salvation that he's given us. So the question, is baptism necessary for salvation, is answered. It's settled. There's, it's, 
There's no disputing it because, let me ask you these questions. Can you be a Christian and not be connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Well, no, you can't. Well, well, can you legitimately be a Christian if you're not united with Christ? How can you be a Christian if you're not united with Christ? Now, you can be like Cornelius and be a believer. You can say, well, yeah, I believe in God. But you're not a Christian, according to the Bible, if you're not united with Christ. Well, how are you united with Christ? Paul is showing us through baptism. See, we need a bigger understanding of baptism. So look at what we've learned so far in Romans. Romans chapter 1, God's wrath is coming for sin. God will deal with sin on on judgment day. And then, by the way, he says, all y'all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. Jew, Gentile, everybody has sinned. And then he, go, he shows us Abraham and says, you can be found righteous, made righteous th- uh, uh, to God through faith. So in Christ, you can stand justified, righteous before God through faith in him. And then chapter five, you can have the peace You can have peace with God. In other words, no longer wrath because you stand justified. Uh, You stand righteous before him through Christ. And so now you have peace with God. The sin has been washed away in baptism. Now you have peace with God uh, uh, and you stand in his grace. Then we see in chapter 6, do you see how this builds up? Every verse of Scripture and chapter isn't just isolated on its own island. It all connects. And so we access all of this through baptism. It's like he leads us here and says, see, this is how we do it. This is how God does this. You you see, uh, um, baptism... It's something he was reminding them of. He's walking them through these first five chapters. We call it now as we have it organized now. And he says, remember your baptism. Don't y'all remember that in Christ, when you were baptized into Christ, it did all this stuff I just talked about. That's how God did this that I just spent these chapters talking about. He solves the problem. He fixes this, this mess that Adam got us in. Jesus fixes it here in chapter 6, and he's saying to them, do you remember how important baptism is? And remember, he's writing to people who are already Christians, and he's saying, remember your baptism and how important it is, how significant it is, the magnitude of it, what it does for you. This is where God does what he's been talking about in that moment, okay, in the obedience of faith Uh, In baptism. Now look at verse 4. So, according to verse 4, how are you able to walk in newness of life? What does verse 4 tell us? Paul says the only answer you can come to, conclusion you can come to, how do you get new life in Christ, is in baptism, is through baptism, is by baptism. That's how you're raised to walk in newness of life. So, can I live a new life in Christ? And not be baptized? No, you cannot. You can't get that out of Scripture. So how can you be a Christian, a follower of Christ, if you hadn't been baptized because you hadn't been raised to walk in newness of life? That happens in baptism. So one word to describe something that is brand new, 
that is, uh, there's, t- there's two words to describe this, this idea of new, this newness of life. One word to describe that is describing something that's brand new, like hot off the shelf. That new game system, that new phone, that, those new shoes, that new car, that new year model, that kind of thing. But that's not the word Paul is using here. The other word that can be used to describe something new is something that has never existed before. And that's the word Paul uses when he's saying that we're raised to walk in newness of life. The word new there is saying this never existed before. It's not the new model. It's not the new design. It's not somebody else's concept of it. It never existed. And so when you are raised in newness of life out of the watery grave we talk about in baptism, it's like it's a life that you're living, a new life that has never existed before. Your life in Christ didn't exist until you came up out of the water united with Christ. You're another person. You're a new creation. You're a new creature, I think the, the King James puts, us, puts it. And it's when you're raised from the dead out of the water of baptism. Now look at verses 6 through 14. Paul shows us how becoming a Christian frees us from the power of sin and death. Listen to what Paul writes. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Uh, Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign, therefore, in your mortal body to obey, make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul tells us that we've become Christians, two things lose power in our lives. There's an immediate power outage, he says, when we become a Christian. What are those two things? Do you remember what he said? Sin and death. Sin, first of all, because he says this, the power, the claim that sin has on you eternally, the claim that sin has on you that, 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 that God's wrath is coming to judge no is gone it no longer has that claim that eternal claim on your life sin no longer has that kind of eternal power on your life and then death also loses its power why because when the christian dies from this physical world they live eternally with god in heaven death has no more power over them Now, death has power over somebody who's still in sin because they're still separated from God. And when they die, they don't have the blessings of heaven. And so death has power over them. But when when you're a Christian, neither sin nor death has power eternally over you. When you're baptized into the body of Christ, 
the body of sin, that fleshly nature, that old self, as he calls it, that fallen self, is destroyed or done away with. Now, what's the result of that? Look at verse number 7. Why does he do that? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died, meaning in baptism, has been freed, set free from sin. And Paul finishes in verse number 11. Look what he says. Saying that we aren't supposed to be alive to, to, to sin anymore and dead to God. We're supposed to be dead to sin like that dead dog and alive to God. But sometimes we get that backwards. See, we become a Christian and then we act like we're still alive to sin and dead to God. And he says, no, that's not how we're supposed to live. You're supposed to be dead to sin and alive to God. But that does leave a question lingering out there, doesn't it? If I'm dead to sin, if I've become a Christian and sin has lost its power in my life, then why do I still struggle with sin? I don't understand. I, I, thought, I thought I was supposed to conquer sin and, and it no longer had control over me and, 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 and I didn't have to battle it anymore. Why am I still struggling with sin when I've become a Christian? Well, look at verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you that reign or rule over you since you are not under law but under grace." Look at the key word there. Paul said, don't let sin reign over you. So then he tells you how you know if sin is reigning over you. What does he say in verse 12? You know sin is reigning over you in your mortal body, in your flesh, when you obey its passions. You see that in your Bible? In verse 12? So how do I know if sin is reigning in my life, ruling in my life, when, when I'm a Christian and I've already been set free from the power of sin, that eternal power or dominion of sin over my life, when it's making you obey it. Does that make sense? Paul tells us sin is ruling and reigning in your life. In other words, you got a problem. You got something you need to deal with when it makes you obey its passions. Does that make sense? So now ask yourself, Am I obeying sin? And if I am, then it is reigning in my life. It's ruling in my life if I'm obeying it. Does that make sense? So that helps us know, is there sin reigning and ruling in my life? Are you still going to sin? Yes. And this helps you know where you stand. Is it ruling me or is it not? Now, that doesn't excuse any sin, okay? <clears throat> but he's talking about don't let it rain in your life. Then look at verse number 13. Number 13. Don't present your members to sin or your body, yourselves, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You see, you've been freed from the claim of sin in your life, but you still have to deal with it on a daily basis. See, Christians live, and what a way to describe that is an, is an already but not yet state. Kind of in this, 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 
We've already been saved when we become Christians, but we've not yet fully gained or realized the fullness of our salvation until Jesus returns. Does that make sense? So we live kind of in this limbo of already saved, but not yet fully because I'm not in heaven with God free from this earth and this mortal flesh. Does that make sense? So while I'm in this situation waiting, and a lot of the parables speak to this, I still have to deal with the flesh. I still have to deal with living here on this planet as a human being. And that means you've still got to deal with sin. Although when death comes, it no longer has reign and rule over you because you've been united with Christ, you've been forgiven. And for the Christian, even when you're dealing with sin in the mortal flesh, you have access to forgiveness. But God expects us to be growing spiritually and and putting off that sin in our life. So, so when he says in verse 13, he helps us another way of understanding is sin ruling in my life. Who are you presenting yourself to? Who are you offering yourself to? Does that make sense? And when he says as an instrument for righteousness or unrighteousness, by instrument, he means tool, something to be used. So here's what we're doing. We're either going over here to God and saying, I give you my body to use, for you to use for righteousness, or I go over to sin and I say, I give you my body as an instrument for unrighteousness. Does that make sense? So when sin is reigning and ruling in my life, I'm obeying its passions. It's saying, let me use your body, please. (laughs) Right? That's what sin does. Can I borrow your body for a minute? It won't take long. Just come here, come here. Right? And then what does it do? It a- keeps asking, right? It's that friend that always has to borrow pencil at school. You know, they keep asking. And then God's over here saying, I saved you. <laughs> My son died for you. We're to offer our bodies and say, here you are. I give you my body in service to you instru- as an instrument, a tool for righteousness. Okay? Who you offer your body to is who you serve. That's who your master is. That's who you're a slave to, enslaved to. And that's the Paul's, Paul's point in the rest, rest of chapter 6. So in our last few minutes, we're going to hit some things in chapter 7 where Paul examines the law which God gave us the law, but it was not... Uh, it was, not, it was not fully able to save us. It, it, was, it was yet lacking, and God knew that. So God didn't make a mistake. In fact, uh, there's a passage that talks about Jesus being, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So this was all by God's design. He knew everything that was going to happen. But the, the, the law was counterproductive in dealing with sin. And these other two verses here help us understand that. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's talking about the old covenant, the old law. For the law made nothing perfect. You see that? But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. That's talking about Jesus, the new covenant, through which we draw near to God. So not like the Old Testament where the priest has to go in there and offer sins for us. Now we can draw near to God through Christ. Now look at what Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 23 27. Now, before faith, 
meaning the old law, before faith in Christ, before faith, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So God knew what he's doing. This was all leading us to Christ. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us. It was something until Christ got here. Uh, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no, no longer under the guardian of the law. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith for as many of you as were. What? You see the word? Baptized. See how he brought that back in? As many of you as were baptized have put on Christ. That's the same thing he's talking about over here in chapter 6. So Paul says in verse number 8 that sin seized the opportunity of the law to infect our lives, to, to get into uh, creation and infect us. So, so seize the opportunity is think of what a milita uh, the military would do uh, if they set up a base somewhere in some remote location, and that was their home base through which they sent out their operations in that location. Does that make sense? And Paul is saying that's what sin did with the law. It saw the law, and it set up its base in the law to convict us of wrong, and, and then it misuse, its misuse of the law is how it had power in our lives. That's what Paul is talking about. The fault lies not with the law, but with its misuse of the law. So the law, what it did, and God understood this to be the case. He knew what would happen. This was by design. Put a spotlight on sin. The law put a spotlight on sin. The law that says out here, if you go over 20 miles an hour, all these lights are going to start blinking. It puts a spotlight on sin, <laughs> you know, when you go 21 miles an hour. <clears throat> That's what the law does. But the law, uh, it, it highlights how grotesque sin is. You see, because look at verse number 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law helped us understand how grotesque and terrible sin is. And then Jesus saves us from that sin. So you might, you might think, though, that, Paul, but you don't understand, dude. You were perfect. I mean, look at all this that you wrote. You were so bold in your faith. I can't relate to you, Paul. You, I mean, you're, you're like one of those guys, you're saying all that, but you don't understand real life and where I live and what I've got to deal with. And Paul would say, he would say, listen to me. Look at verse number 15 in chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. You ever felt like that? That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I want to do, uh, do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do 
If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then you realize I can relate to that because that's how I feel. That's what it's like to be me. See, Paul dealt with the same thing. Paul was still in this flesh too and had to deal with living here on this earth. And he understood. You see, but look look at what he says in verses 24 and 25. Paul speaks for all of us when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul's saying, I I know what it's supposed to be like. Here's how I'm supposed to live. But I ain't always living like that. I struggle just like you to live for God, to offer my body to God as a tool for his righteousness. But I tell you what, thanks be to God for delivering me because now I know sin and death have no claim over me. I can be forgiven and ultimately I will live with God in heaven. Do you see that? That's good news. That's the good news of the gospel. That I can live for God and I am expected to continue to learn how to offer my body to God instead of sin. And ultimately I'll be with God in heaven. Thanks be to God who has given us the victory and delivered us. What a wonderful deliverer we have in God through Christ. If we can help you this morning, we want you to know we're always here for you. Pray for you, encourage you. Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism and walk in newness of life. We want you to know we're here for you. If we can serve you in any way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.